What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is. Where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have the Jared Report, news about the son-in-law in the White House. This week, Jared's trip to Bahrain for a Mideast peace conference. For that story, we'll turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. But first, Donald Trump may seem like a comic book supervillain straight out of Batman's Gotham City, bringing darkness to cover the land. But how did he manage to convince millions of people that he knew better than anyone how to make America great again? And can we undo the damage he has done? Joy Ann Reed has been thinking about those two questions. Now she's written a book with some answers. It's called The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Joy Reed, of course, is a political analyst for MSNBC and host of AM Joy. She's written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, and The Guardian. Joyanne Reed, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. In order to defeat Trump in 2020, we need to understand why exactly he won in 2016. What's your explanation for how Trump happened? My explanation is multifaceted. I think on the one hand, if you look at the Clinton campaign, I think they, they underestimated the effectiveness of the 40-plus-year campaign to sow hatred and fear of Hillary Clinton. And they underestimated the extent to which American society is incredibly sexist and believes women shouldn't lead. I think they underestimated that. I think they assumed that because she had been loyal to Barack Obama as his secretary of state, that that alone would get her his votes. I think Joe Biden needs to take particular care of that because just relying on being Obama's person is not a way to get Obama's votes. I think that was one thing. I think the second thing is that the Obama administration, as well as the Clinton campaign, underestimated the power of what Russia was doing and the specific thing they were doing. If you read the Mueller report, what they were doing was they were going right at the people who normally would have voted for Hillary Clinton, particularly black people. 
And they were saying to them, you can't trust her. She's racist. She said super predator. She was for that crime bill, even though she was just a first lady. She didn't have anything to do with making the crime bill. But they hit on her base, and they got people to essentially dispossess themselves of their own votes, disenfranchise themselves by not voting. That's how she lost. She lost votes that she should have gotten from people of color, particularly young people of color who weren't alive even during the Clinton era, but who only learned about her what they heard online. And it was coming from these Russian bots and from these trolls. Uh, and that Russian effort was really about that. It was about getting people to dispossess themselves of their votes. It wasn't that so much that Russians necessarily went into the machines, which we don't even know if they did. We have no idea what they did to you know, the voting rolls and all of that. But we do know that they got people to disenfranchise themselves. And they got people to be turned off from her, including Bernie Sanders people, as well as um, African-Americans and other young voters of color. I think the other reason that Donald Trump won is that the vehemence on his side – the anger, the fear over the changes in the country, the fact that the country is moving toward a majority, non-white majority, it's happening. I think that people underestimated the kind of fear that that created among a lot of white voters who placed that as the, as the cause of all of their other problems. That that immigration message has been powerful all across Western Europe for the same reason, fear of migration, fear of non-white, non-Christian migration. It's a powerful, powerful argument. Because what you're saying is, we are all tribes. You have to vote for your own tribe. What do you see as the key difference between the Democrats and the Republicans? I was saying to somebody the other day, and I think it's true, that the difference between Democrats and Republicans is that typically Democrats are fighting for other people. Democrats are a multiracial group of, of voters. We are the most multiracial party probably in the Western Hemisphere. And so Democrats are always fighting for others, the kids in cages. They're not our kids, but we want to fight for those kids. We're fighting for people who generally don't vote, who are poor. We want to raise their wages. We want to get people who don't have any money something, right? Uh, Democrats are typically college-educated voters who are concerned that rural voters somewhere out in the hinterland don't have enough to eat, right? So Democrats are fighting for other people. Republicans are fighting for themselves. Republicans are saying, we're the party of white Christian men and their wives. We're fighting for us. And so Republicans tend to fight a lot harder because how much harder do you fight for yourself versus someone else? And so they're fighting tooth and nail till the last dog dies, and they will always vote. They will never give up. They'll fight for 10 years, 20 years, anything to stay on top. And so because that's their prime directive, they're fighting for themselves. I think they tend to just fight harder, and they fight in a more unified way. And Democrats have all these other interests. We have so many different groups of people in the party, so many different interests that are disparate. It's a harder group to hold together. So I think Democrats going forward, if they want to think about beating Trump, I think they need to readjust their sense of what us is. And Democrats need to understand that the fights they're having, whether they're for trans people um, that want access just to go to the restroom without being harassed or to serve in the military or whether they're fighting for those kids who are in cages, they need to reconfigure that as us because you're always going to fight harder for us than you are going to be for someone else. Well, last time you were on our show, we talked about the time Obama said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. He was talking, of course, about Trayvon Martin, the 17-year-old who was shot and killed in Florida for doing nothing. That's one way to think about how Donald Trump has changed America. 
Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I was having this conversation earlier today with a group of folks that when I was covering all of these Black Lives Matter cases that were happening during the Obama era, the violence was still there, right? You still had people who either overutilized, you know, the capacity we give police uh, to have life and de- make life and death decisions over over people, over black people. We had street violence, gun violence. We had all of these things, but you had a sense that there was empathy in the White House for the victims, right? You had a sense that the president of the United States connected with, understood, had empathy for the dead. Now what you have is a federal government that's no longer the cavalry. You know, you can't even imagine the 1960s being the 1960s with this kind of a government in the White House, because that means that there is no civil rights division of the Justice Department. There is no attorney general who might call a task force about police violence. There's there's nothing. And so what we have now with Donald Trump is Trayvon Martin situations happening but no empathy anywhere coming from the federal government. You have a hostile federal government. And particularly for for black people, African-Americans have long relied on the federal government as the cavalry. The cavalry is gone. It's a pretty scary time, I think, to be in America. How important was race in explaining Trump's election? Whites as a group, especially white men, have been voting Republican for many decades. There's nothing new about that. Correct. And and I think with Donald Trump, what you had was more of a of an explanation. There was sort of a performance of the regular man revolting. Like that was the narrative that the media put forward because it, it, it was a better story, I think, than the real story because the real story was uglier. I think that what you've seen is that, you know, white Christian men are already a minority. They're down to about 30 percent of the country. And there was a reaction that a lot of particularly white Christian men had, not just to Obama himself, but to the changes that happened over those eight years. There was a sense that the country that had already begun to pull away from them as the center of our culture, as sort of the sort of predominant Americans, the most important Americans, the Americans who got the most attention, not just who had control of the money and the power, but also the cultural attention, that that was already pulling away. um, And that by the time Obama left office, it had pulled away so thoroughly that a lot of people were, frankly, frightened. They were frightened by the future of a country that was going to be, is going to be majority non-white. They were frightened by the fact that over their objections, I mean, the severe objections of white voters, Barack Obama got reelected by 5 million votes, even though he lost every category of white American, young, old, um, you know, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, everybody. He just lost so much ground with white voters, but he still got reelected. And so there was just this sense of loss. Um, And when I looked at the studies that looked at the electorate in 2016, the thing I didn't find was that economically disaffected white people are what elected Trump. Yes, he did win white working class people, but our definition of white working class in the media is off, right? We think anyone who's white working class, we just presume that they're broke, but they're not. You know, you can be a police officer or a firefighter or a plumber and you're white working class, but you can have plenty of money in the bank. You just don't have a college degree. So Donald Trump's voters weren't broke. They felt that they weren't doing as well as their parents, but it's who they blamed that made them more of a Trump voter. If you blamed immigrants for the fact that you feel you're not doing as well as your parents, you're a Trump voter. If you blame the big corporations who shipped your jobs away, you were probably a Hillary Clinton voter or you didn't vote at all, especially if you were white and poor. 
In your book, The Man Who Sold America, you say the New York media created Trump and that even though he was openly racist in the decades before 2016, you write he was given a pass that a white Southerner never would have gotten, close quote. That's pretty striking. Yeah, I spoke with a uh, an Alabama judge who's African-American and who's like the chief law enforcement officer for the part of Georgia, uh, for the part of, sorry, of Alabama where he lives. And he made a really, I think, powerful point was that if Donald Trump did everything that he did and said everything that he said with a Southern accent, he would have been treated like sort of a Southern troglodyte racist, right? He would have been written off um, as somebody who was unelectable and unacceptable in public life. He would have been George Wallace. I mean, he acts like George Wallace. He had the same sort of flippant attitude toward race, sort of casual racism, this sort of um, high energy performance, these rallies full of, you know, excitement, and, and they were almost theatrical. He's very similar to George Wallace. But the difference is George Wallace was written off as a racist because he's a Southerner. And in America, we tend to think of racism as a purely Southern phenomenon. And particularly the New York media, uh, because it's in New York, because it's based here, and this is their neighbors, their friends, their family, they don't tend to recognize the thing that happens that black people in New York experience as racism as racism. New York in the 1980s, when I moved back here as a teenager, it was a, the, one of the most racist places I'd ever been. It was the first place I'd ever lived in my life. And I lived in Colorado, where Klan members used to have elected office, right? I'd never experienced a place where if you just walked into a neighborhood, you'd get chased out with bats. That was mm. New York. New York is where, as a black person, you had to know which side of the line you were on in Canarsie. You couldn't go to places like Bensonhurst. You couldn't even walk into that neighborhood. People were murdered, chased out and chased into the streets and killed just for being in that neighborhood. New York was as racist as what we conceive Alabama to be in the 1980s, and that was Trump's New York. It was incredibly segregated. And, you know, young black kids experienced the same kind of racism young black kids in the South experienced. You know, there were people saying that we didn't, they didn't want their neighborhoods integrated. If you tried to move to certain parts of Queens, you were chased out. So I think that the New York media, because it's, it's home, I think has a hard time experiencing those things as racism and describing them as that. So Trump was just a part of the family. He was, a, he was part of the media family. He was a guy on TV. He was someone that Larry King and, you know, Oprah and everyone else wanted to ask about his thoughts about the world. He was constantly being asked what he thought about foreign policy and Russia and stuff he had nothing, no knowledge of. But he's part of the media. He's just part of the crowd. During the 2016 campaign, Trump did not talk a lot about black people. He did talk a lot about Muslims and about Mexicans. You know, he talked about black people in the sense of his character of black people, that, you know, black people all lived in squalor and what do you have to lose? Yeah. Because, you know, he has this weird sort of cartoonish impression of black people, that there are two kinds. There are famous black people that Donald Trump wants to be around and invite to Mar-a-Lago and hang around and get his picture taken with. And then there's all the rest of the black people who, in his mind, all live in filth and squalor. And they, you can't let them have control of the country because then the whole country will be a shithole country like every black country. That's how he thinks, right, according to the people who know him the best. But when it comes to Muslims, Donald Trump tapped into a real core fear among his core base, which is that the country is not only becoming more non-white, that it's also becoming unchristian, that, that the Christian narrative is losing its center place in the American story, that America is no longer a white Christian country, that Muslims are coming, that non-religious people are taking over and making the country secular. 
And so when he talked about Muslims, he was, I think, talking about his own shared feelings of discomfort and fear that he, you know, he shares with his base. But I think he was also channeling that kind of fear of removal, replacement. You hear that replacement talk among people on the far right, but I think it's experienced among people on the regular right, that they don't like the idea that suddenly it's not just Christmas celebrations. You also have to acknowledge that people are also celebrating Muslim holidays and Jewish holidays, and that they're all being celebrated and they all are equal. Well, that doesn't sit well with everyone. They want it to just be Christian. And so I think Trump, even though he's not religious, uh, he shows no signs of ever having read the Bible or knowing anything about it. He connects with white evangelical Christians because they're afraid. They're afraid that the country isn't centered on them anymore, and he agrees with them. You have a chapter in your book titled, What America Can Learn from South Africa. What is it that America can learn from South Africa? I think for one thing, because it's so far away, um, you know, when Americans look at South Africa, they think of it as a completely alien and sort of foreign country, but it's the most similar country to ours. Its history is extremely similar. It was founded around the same time. Both countries were born amid Europeans enslaving the indigenous people that they came upon when they found this so-called new country. The Europeans who came to America enslaved the Native Americans, and when that was not enough labor, they imported Africa. Africans and enslaved them. In South Africa, the Europeans who arrived there enslaved the Khoikhoi and the other native tribes that they found. And when that was still not enough labor, they imported Malaysians and enslaved them. And so they, both of the two countries were born with this dual narrative of this Christian paradise that they were trying to create, where white Christian men could make of themselves anything that they could be, that they had every possibility, but only if they were white Christian men, and that everyone else they found were essentially savages who were just there to provide free labor and there to enrich those white men further. And so both of these two countries traveled through these eras of extreme segregation, extreme dispossession of those who were doing the labor, and then they came out of it and had to figure out what to do with a country that was now attempting to act as a country where everyone was equal. In the case of South Africa, that didn't happen until the 1990s. You know, it took them that long to get to where we got to in the 60s. And now both countries are sort of navigating, what do you do with that? What do you do with these two tribes of people, these two races of people who now have to learn to live together in one multiracial democracy? And they're just an upside-down version of us. It's just that the white population there is only 10%. But I have to tell you that the white extremist population, those who still want a segregated South Africa the way it was before, they've been in a long conversation with our white nationalists and telling them, you better beware, because the same way we lost our country, you're going to lose yours. You're going to lose control of the country, and now look where we are. We can't control this country anymore. Once all of them can vote, they vote us out. Once all of them have the franchise, we can't have power anymore, and this is coming to you too. So there's been this weird sort of subtext conversation, well, not even subtext, open conversation between those two. It's why you see people like Dylan Roof constantly referencing Rhodesia and South Africa, these white republics in Africa that they see as the future of white America. So the countries have a lot to learn from each other about how to talk about race. I think South Africans do it more bluntly and more openly, and I think in a more healthy way. Um, But also what can happen when you have the dispossession of the majority by a minority and how ugly it can be and how violent it can be. And we're already living under minority rule. So I think we better learn about South Africa to learn a lot more about our own country and what we could turn into if we're not careful. Joy Ann Reed, her new book is The Man Who Sold America. Joy, thanks so much for talking with us today. This has been great. 
Thank you very much. Now it's time for the Jared Report, news about the son-in-law in the White House. This week, Jared's trip to Bahrain for a Mideast Peace Conference. For that story, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. She, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's best known for her award-winning work on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. So at his conference in Bahrain, Jared declared that the conflict between Israel and Palestine is, quote, a solvable problem economically, close quote. Tell us, first of all, who participated in this conference and who didn't. It was one of those great Middle East peace conferences where no one who matters is there. A lot of uh, wealthy, like billionaires club, Middle Eastern developers and hedge funders and speculators, some uh, second-tier governmental representatives from U.S.-friendly Middle East countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain comes to mind, and then no Israelis. No Palestinians. So you could argue that Jared is kind of an Israeli representative, but there were no Palestinians at this except for a couple of uh, Hebron businessmen who are somehow not looked on that kindly by the Palestinian Authority. And what exactly was Jared's pitch to the assembled billionaires and Mideast potentates? The deal of the century, (laughs) which he... He seems to feel that he's opening like a new business in Queens. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like the the motto? The thing is called peace to prosperity. And what he's in his strange twilight world offering is um, the development of the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank and Gaza, economic spurs to growth in the occupied territories, (laughs) economic growth in the blockaded area of Gaza, a new infrastructure plans and plans to insert $50 billion into the Palestinian economy, clearly a number just made up out of thin air with no basis in anything. I think there's a $5 billion road that they're planning to build, some kind of transportation between Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, Of course, this is a longed-for thing by the Palestinians, but There were no Palestinians involved in making this plan. And what was it that Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said about, in particular, the development development plan for Gaza? He said it's going to be like a really hot IPO. That's how these people think. Uh, Now, this is a different approach from what previous presidents have focused on. They've all focused on the political and the military issues around an independent Palestinian state. Why has that been the focus? That's been the focus because the key issue here is how to have a sovereign Palestinian state next to a sovereign Israeli state. Um, And that has been the issue in the modern era since the British mandate ended, basically, Uh, since the Nakba, which was the catastrophe for the Palestinians when they were moved out of Israel by the Israeli government. And uh, this is not something that the Trump administration wants to deal with because they don't really want to deal with the Palestinians. They're representatives of the Israeli state themselves. 
Jared, in his speech, said his plan could work if the Palestinians would accept it. He said, quote, they've blamed Israel and everyone else for all the people's problems, when in fact, this is all achievable if the government wants to make these reforms, close quote. How do you interpret that? It just, it's so condescending and killing. You just can't stand it. I interpret that as an attack on the Palestinians for not having the kind of economic development all of the Palestinians would desire. It's a it's a gross omission of the two elephants in the room who are the occupation of the West Bank and the economic blockade of Gaza. By whom? The Israelis, headed by good friend of the Trump family, Benjamin Netanyahu. At the conference, ministers from several Arab countries of the Persian Gulf argued that the Palestinians' natural entrepreneurship, strong literacy, and high levels of education could all be unleashed under Jared's plan. What do you make of that argument? That argument seems to me to be a threat that Jared is trying to sick the Palestinian people on the Palestinian government at the behest of Israeli, American, and Gulf entrepreneurs and developers, and that's just not going to work. What happens when you do that to the Palestinians who are sitting there in refugee camps and in economically deprived areas because of Israeli behaviors for the past 20 and 30 years is they rally to the governments they don't like because they have solidarity and they want sovereignty and independence. And yeah, they have blamed Israel for a lot of their economic plight. Why? Because it's Israel's fault. And there is indeed, Jared is right, there is an incredible population of brilliant minds and energetic people, just as there is everywhere. And usually if you find a people, any people, an organized group of people who aren't doing as well as they should, it's not always their own fault. It's because of outside influences. This is history. This is geopolitics, not some made-up game that Jared Kushner alone knows how to play. So $50 billion for Palestinian economic infrastructure, better transportation, more reliable power, more water. Isn't Jared right that this $50 billion investment would transform Palestine? Yeah, any small developing country would gladly accept your $50 billion if they could do it themselves with you, but not if there's a middleman barking and screaming and stopping at every moment. Could Palestine become what Jared is imagining, the Singapore of the Middle East? Well, there's a serious flaw in that argument, obviously. What is Singapore? It's called a city-state. State is the key word. There is no word state in Palestinian authority. Um, and that is, that's the problem. You cannot develop if you're under occupation. It's, there's just no chance. If your economy is not your own and you can't make decisions on behalf of your own people with your own people, there's no chance for development. It's like asking a prison population to develop. The New York Times report on Jared's Mideast Peace Conference said that, quote, much of the conference seemed only loosely connected to the region or to anything at all, close quote. What was that about? Well, I think what the New York Times and certainly Haaretz have espied in this plan is an attempt to 
put the Palestinians in such a situation that their sovereignty is no longer part of the argument. And that is why it is a pipe dream, because their sovereignty is at the center of the argument. It always has been. And to think that a problem that really extends back even longer than our memories and even longer than Jared's grandparents' memories is going to be solved by a paper plan that uses as its PR images photos from a USAID project that has been helping Palestinians that has been defunded by the Trump administration. I mean, it's even worse than Jared's usual doe-eyed, innocent stupidity. It's, It's cynical. Jared brought not only billionaires and golf potentates to this conference, he also got Tony Blair. <laughs> I say, whenever Tony Blair shows up, that is a deal that is not going to be a good one. But but Tony Blair, you know, he worked for many years in around Middle East peace planning. He certainly knows the problems here. Did Tony Blair endorse Jared Kushner's new approach? Not exactly. I mean, he was there, so that was wrong. But he did warn Jared that this was destructive for the two-state solution. He um, said you have to discuss Palestinian sovereignty. That's part of the deal. So he's not like Jared. He knows the realities of the region. So Jared Kushner's breakthrough, if we can call it that, is to argue that you can make peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians if the Israelis and the Palestinians don't participate. That certainly was something Bill Clinton never thought of and something Jimmy No, no, of course not. (laughs) I mean, Bill Clinton sat down with Yasser Arafat. It was hard for both of them, especially for Arafat, and that sort of blew up the deal in the end. But there they were. They talked to each other. There were real plans. Each each piece of economic development, in fact, went hand in hand with a piece of political understanding. This has none of the political understanding. I'm just so annoyed at it. I mean, it's like, it's as if they're looking at Palestine. You know, there's this famous expression, a land without people for a people without a land that the Zionists proclaim. But I keep thinking it's a land without developers for developers without land. So they want the land. (laughs) And what was the response in Israel? I assume the Netanyahu people were thrilled. Uh, What about the rest of Israel? I mean, the Netanyahu people are probably thrilled. It's good PR for them with the right in Israel, and he's coming up for yet another election. Uh, The left in Israel is horrified because they see this as a recipe for further unrest, further dissatisfaction. It will never be realized. The Palestinians don't even want it, but they want what it represents. They want money. They want economic development. So it's bound to create dissatisfaction, disgust. 80% of the Palestinian people have rejected it out of hand, and I believe that that's a low, low polling number. I can't imagine a Palestinian who would say hooray, except for maybe the two guys who were there from Hebron. Haaretz had a really good line in their headline. They said, you know, it, it was like Miss America calling for world peace. It was as laudable and as ridiculous as, as that kind of a speech. Heartfelt. Yeah, I don't even think it was heartfelt, so I can't go for that. I understand there are some people in Gaza who welcome Jared Kushner's plan. Yeah, they're not part of the 80% who reject it, 
but they're not part of what you would assume would be the business types who might welcome it. They are, or at least one of their representatives, is a very militant, extreme person named Ziad Nakala. And he has been using the um, deal of the century to point out to the Palestinian people that their governments, both the Hamas government in Gaza and the Abbas government in the, in the West Bank, have been walking along this path to negotiation and political understanding with the Israelis, and they always get stabbed in the back. And this is yet another example of how the Palestinians are being disincluded from discussion about their future and the only alternative to this compromised, weak-kneed continuation of negotiation is militant action. And he has promised to send a thousand projectiles into Israel per day for a month. And that, but that's the kind of person that this is helping to, to raise in the Palestinian view, because really Palestinians are disappointed and disgusted. And, and, and Jared's incredibly condescending and unrealistic proposal from an American government. It's not like he's just some weirdo, although, mm, but um, it is very disturbing to the Palestinian population, I'm sure. So in the end, Jared may not have won over the Palestinians, but he did get a lot of big money people to support his plan. He and they are, are betting that offering $50 billion of investments will cause Palestinians to set aside their aspirations for an independent state. Is there any chance he's right about that? One, no. Two, there is no $50 billion. It reminds me of the money promised to Haiti for the Haitian earthquake. But I'd like to uh, quote what Mahmoud Abbas said about this Jared proposal. He said, well, it's interesting, he said. Now I'm quoting. Let's have you recognize the two-state solution and recognize that East Jerusalem is occupied and then recognize that international legitimacy is critical. Then you send me those words on a piece of paper, and the next day I'll show up at the White House to negotiate. Otherwise, no. Amy Willens. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, John. Finally, the 29-year-old politician taking on the NRA in Florida. That's Anna Escamani. She was devastated by the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, but she took that anger and used it to fuel her successful run for office. And she's John Nichols' guest this week on the Next Left podcast. She's one of the youngest and most progressive Democrats in a Republican-controlled legislature, and she's the daughter of Iranian immigrants. Anna Eskamani, this week with John Nichols on the Next Left podcast. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcast. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. 
The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.